Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 3 on January 6, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and also on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Mr. Lou Lombardo, who is an auto safety researcher, former physical scientist with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and a former board member of the Medevac Foundation International. Before I introduce Mr. Lombardo, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 2 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I'm not sure if it was the holidays, but I did not hear any feedback from Episode 2 of the podcast. Remember, however, to call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast itself, so this is a great chance to have your voice heard on the show. A project that uh, I have started uh, for those that have been to the Air Medical Today Facebook page, and that's just facebook.com slash airmedicaltoday, I have started uh, accumulating all the air medical and critical care transport fan pages. And what I want to do is make sure that we locate all of those. So please go to the Facebook page if your program or service has a page, and see if your program's listed uh, on there. It's in the on the favorite pages tab, which is found on the left-hand column on the main Facebook page there. So uh, send me an email at webmaster at airmed today if your program is not listed, because we want to include everyone. Okay, let's talk about some recent news affecting the aeromedical world. The big story continues to be healthcare reform. And uh, as of this podcast, officials from the Obama administration have made it clear they are cool with fast tracking the final phase of the legislation with no public hearings and uh, no Republican involvement. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who had led a delegation to meet with President Obama at the White House this week, have not appointed a House-Senate conference committee to work out differences in their divergent health care bills. Instead, Democrats in both chambers are negotiating among themselves in hopes of 
forging a common bill that can be approved as amendments to the legislation. Republicans are obviously making an issue of this strategy. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that a bill that's been written outside of the view of the American people will continue to be handled by Democrats in the same way again, said Don Stewart, a spokesman for the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Other critics have pointed to Obama's campaign pledge about bringing all parties together and broadcasting those negotiations on C-SPAN so that the American people can see what the choices are. House leaders also backed further away from a measure that would create a national insurance plan or public option and instead pledged to shape a final overhaul package focused on delivering affordable care to more people while keeping the insurance industry in check. House staffers have outlined more than two dozen differences between a reform bill they crafted versus one hashed out in the Senate, detailing the difficulty yet to come as leaders from both chambers begin to meld the legislation into something that is passable. In an 11-page memo, staffers cite everything from major differences such as the inclusion of a public option, implementation dates, and tax hikes, to the relatively minor such as gaps in the way both bills would change how care is delivered by hospitals and doctors. Paying for the legislation has been a particularly thorny issue. The House plans to defray the cost of its 10-year, $1 trillion package, largely with a tax on the wealthy. The Senate, however, has called together a number of new fees, though it primarily relies on a tax on high-valued insurance plans to help defray the cost of its $871 billion bill. In another development is whether forcing Americans to buy health insurance may violate the U.S. Constitution. Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott said that eventually a lawsuit could be triggered by this action. Abbott warns that Texas and possibly other states could sue the federal government over the measure requiring nearly all Americans to buy insurance. Abbott laid out his concerns in a four-page legal analysis of the legislation, saying the insurance provision goes beyond the regulatory authority granted to Congress. Congress has the power to regulate commerce, but not to coerce every American to engage in commerce by forcing them to purchase insurance, he said. Abbott and 13 other attorneys general have already raised constitutional questions about another provision in the legislation dubbed the Nebraska Compromise. If passed, that stipulation would shield Nebraska, but not other states, from the cost of expanding Medicaid, the federal health insurance program for the poor. He said that the multi-state lawsuit against the federal government was a virtual certainty if the measure isn't removed as U.S. House and Senate leaders iron out differences in competing versions of the bill. The special deal for Nebraska was included in the Senate bill after Senator Ben Nelson, Nebraska's lone Democrat in Congress, held out while other Democrats worked to get 60 votes to cut off a Republican filibuster. And those sources are USA Today and Modern Healthcare. In other news, it was reported on December 18th by the Medevac Foundation International that the Air Medical Journal Associates had pledged $10,001 donation, bringing it 
to the elite benefactor circle of $10,000 plus donors to the foundation. The journal's donation will be dedicated exclusively to supporting industry research and in encouraging content submission for the Air Medical Journal, the official publication of the nation's five leading air medical transport associations. Research and education projects that have received Medevac Foundation International Grant funding in 2009 include an educational webinar on ambulance ground transfer safety, studies assessing cognitive fatigue in pilots and air medical crews, and research on the use of ultrasound stroke treatment in helicopter transport. The Air Medical Journal, which focuses on transport medicine, is the official journal of the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association, Air Medical Physician Association, Association of Air Medical Services, National EMS Pilots Association, and the International Association of Flight Paramedics. The source for that was a press release put out by the Association of Air Medical Services. The American Ambulance Association, or AAA, announced on December 23rd through a press release that they have created a web-based national emergency health registry through a partnership with DocVIA. The innovative new web service, which is called invisiblebracelet.org, will enable patients to register personal vital health details in the event of an emergency automatically notifying friends and family through a network of EMS providers in the United States. In the first quarter of 2010, individuals that live, work, or frequently travel within the service areas supported by AAA-affiliated EMS providers will be able to register and maintain unlimited access to a secure online account that holds up to 10 in-case-of-emergencies or ICE contacts that they're vital with their vital health information. For $5 per year, a registered member can maintain an account accessible by licensed, trained, and certified medics and dispatching during medical emergencies. When emergency care is needed, authorized EMS responders are provided temporary read-only access to a member's information using a HIPAA-compliant search engine. If ambulance transport is required, medics can automatically generate text or email messages to the member's designated emergency contacts, instantly notifying loved ones when and where the member is being transported by the ambulance. As reported in the article, the Invisible Bracelet system answers two basic questions in an emergency. What do emergency responders need to know about you, your allergies, and medical needs, and how should loved ones be notified? Information about the company is found at invisiblebracelet.org. The source for that article was the American Ambulance Association. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings, but the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS slash blog tab. It is delayed, however, due to network issues on Facebook. Today I am interviewing Mr. Lou Lombardo, who is an auto safety researcher through his company, Lewis V. Lombardo, LLC, and his website and blog, careforcrashvictims.com, which he founded in 2007. Lou is a former 
physical scientist with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Office of Advanced Safety Research, and then in the Intelligent Technologies Research Division. He served from 1978 through 2007, except for one year between 1985 and 1986, when he was with the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Mr. Lombardo also served as a board member of the Medevac Foundation International from 2007 through 2009. Lou has been an advocate for adopting airbags and other crashworthy measures to enhance car crash victim survival. His credo has been to serve the public interest in preventing crash injuries and then responding effectively when they do occur. Mr. Lombardo's report on airbags to Congress in 1980 was cited in a 1983 United States Supreme Court ruling where the auto industry was accused of waging the regulatory equivalent of war against automobile airbags. The court ruled in a unanimous opinion affirming that airbags were a viable safety technology. When he was with the Institute for Highway Safety, he organized a national conference to expand the adoption of airbags for corporate fleets. After returning to NHTSA in 1986, he continued his research, this time into how hospitals were treating car crash victims. Lou's work prompted congressional support to establish a major trauma center in Florida to conduct research on how crash injuries were treated and how improvements could be made, which led into the renowned Crash Injury Research Engineering Network, or SIREN, program across the United States. Lou insisted that it was vital to detect hidden internal injuries that often were overlooked with sometimes fatal consequences. In 1997, Mr. Lombardo presented to NHTSA the urgency algorithm for automatic crash notification, all to get the right rescue resources to the accident scene as quickly as possible. From 1997 until his retirement from NHTSA, Lou worked on the development of the Atlas and Database of Aeromedical Services, or ADAMS, so that when a serious crash occurs, there will be preferably be automatic notification to the nearest medical response team and emergency facility that can treat the injuries. Since 2007, Lou is fighting to include rollover accidents, often with roof crush and quadriplegic injuries, as high-priority scenarios for automatic crash notification. As has been the situation across 40 years of his dedicated work, he continues to have constructive dialogue with auto safety colleagues and government officials, as he is always insisting that there is much more we can do and must do. Lou received the Public Service Award from the Association of Aeromedical Services in 2007 for his role in the development of Adams. In 2004, the Adams Project was recognized with two national awards by the American Society of Association Executives, the first being the Association's Advancing America Award and the second, the highest honor, the Summit Award. Lou received his bachelor's in science from the University of Hartford in 1965 and completed graduate studies in public administration from American, American University in 1970. He lives in Bethesda, Maryland, and has three grown children. 
Lou also has a listserv where you can sign up to receive articles about the work that he is doing and following regarding prevention at his website. I have been receiving these informative emails since he began sending them out in 2007 and would suggest that you also do that. Welcome, Lou, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you, Ed. I'm glad to be here. Lou, you have a very impressive career, and I and and many others who receive your email updates appreciate this information. What has been the real focus of your work? Since 1991, when we had an airbag uh, fatality that uh, we subsequently found out could have been saved, I have been working to improve the care for crash victims. And uh, I I started my work uh, as as a research scientist uh, on this subject at NHTSA in 1991, and I retired from NHTSA in 2007. And I've been working um, uh, since then to build support for faster, smarter, and better emergency care for seriously injured victims. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you wrote a paper because it's on your website, and I'll have that in the show notes. But uh, you wrote a paper called "Vision for a Safer America: Motor Vehicle Crash Victims Need Help Getting Emergency Medical Care to Save Lives." And that was done on December 18th, 2008. Why did emergency care become a big part of your work? We found that uh, people are dying in crashes uh, uh, needlessly. Uh, They are not getting uh, the care that they need in a fast, it's not timely, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not with the proper resources. In in essence, more than half the fatalities, about 65 people a day, uh, are die without transport to a medical treatment facility. And today, emergency medical resources uh, uh, can do a much better job of providing emergency care. Um, Okay, but with the United States having such a diverse geography and sometimes very non-coordinated emergency services, how do you have uh, a faster, smarter emergency EMS system? What do you have to do? Uh, today's emergency medical care, as you say, um, uh, it varies all across the country, and it is essentially sequential. Um, they dispatch a policeman to check out a crash. They send out an ambulance if they find if the policeman finds that they need help. The ambulance gets there, and then they say, well, we need extrication equipment because Mm -hmm. the person's been trapped. Then they decide, oh, the person's really hurt, call for a medical helicopter. And we can do that much, much better. We can improve emergency medical care with timely 
and reliable information on crashes. And it can be communicated instantly and automatically. We now have OnStar type automatic crash notification systems, which are now on 5 million vehicles and growing rapidly. Other manufacturers are putting in similar systems. Yeah, I see that in the literature. And what we can do is we can <clears throat> link that information directly to trauma centers and air medical services when there is a crash with a high probability of serious injury. And that would make it a better system in the United States. How, how much do you think, Lou, is a problem with, you know, if you, even if you had the automatic crash notification with your non-coordination of EMS services, how, how much money do we have to put into that to develop that system so it is coordinated? Uh, the idea of putting money into the system to get the information communicated is not that great. Right. And that is the focus of the work that I'm trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. uh, actually coordinating, uh, this, in other words, if you have, right now people are operating in the dark. The crash occurs, someone f sees it and calls it in, and so uh, people then go to the scene um, and realize that they need more uh, medical services. But if you can instantly and automatically transmit information that says that this crash, this, this crash is at such and such a location and that this crash has a high probability of serious injury and you communicate that to air medical services and to the trauma center, the, the whole system can become both more effective and more efficient. Yeah, and, and I, I guess in, in thinking through my earlier question, even if it's like in a, a rural area and the highest level of care is, is BLS services, but yet there's an air medical helicopter transmitting that data gets everybody um, activated, correct? Yes, you want them informed when it's, when it's serious. Right. You want them all informed instantly and automatically. But, yeah, my point is that if, you know, because the appropriate response would have been ALS, but you didn't have ALS, but at least you've got uh, everything in motion. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the automatic crash notification or ACM uh, systems. Um, have we seen a decrease in fatalities with the use so far? Not that has been attributed to that. I'm sure uh, there have been instances where that may have happened, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, there are only 5 million, uh, roughly 5 million cars equipped, and there are about 150 million cars on the road. So uh, it, it's only beginning to get out there. And really what I'm trying to do is I, I believe that we will eventually have all cars will have an automatic crash notification system. It's just so good that uh, it's inevitable that that technology will not um, be widely used. 
The question is, when will they get into all those cars? And I believe, like airbags, which were a 20-year battle to get airbags into cars, um, they will come. But what you really need to do is you really need to show exactly your question. Uh, are these systems really saving lives, and can they save lives? Mm -hmm. We know as researchers that they can. The question is, how do you document that ACN systems are saving lives, and then you, then you would create, then you would have uh, market forces demanding it. Right now, you don't have market forces demanding ACN systems. You just have uh, uh, companies trying to promote it. You have uh, safety advocates saying we need it, uh, but that's a far cry from public demand. Like research with airbags, which have Likely. shown, yeah, yes. Okay, would um, are you looking at possibly trying to legislate too to make it a requirement? I I, I am. Mm -hmm. I would like very much to help that come about. How successful? I mean, is it a dual pronged approach to try to um, get the data to create the consumer demand plus legislative or? Which do you think is the – are they both equal or uh, – I don't know, but I, I can't I can't weigh them. But mm -hmm. uh, the history is that um, you need the data. Uh, with the data, you can increase the likelihood that you'll have legislative action. With legislative action, you increase the chance that you will have market demand and uh, – and you'll begin really saving lives and uh, saving livelihoods. Now, didn't, uh, didn't NHTSA estimate that there'd be a 20% decre decrease in fatalities? Yes, that, mm -hmm. that was research uh, that uh, back in the uh, mid-90s. Did, how did they, do you know how they based that or... They did. They did believe that um, it was based on air medical services. In other words, since so many of the fatalities are in rural areas, uh, uh, nearly half, uh, uh, then what they felt was that if you could get uh, using automatic crash notification, using um, uh, air medical services, deploying them as rapidly as possible when you need them, not when you don't need them, then you could have a, uh, a possibly a 20% reduction in fatalities. So basically the golden hour and, and getting patients to yeah. level level one trauma centers. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know we had talked uh, before we started, uh, former Governor Corzine, uh, you had said that that demonstrated uh, the uh, how this all worked when he had uh, the uh, crash in his vehicle. That's right. That's a 2007 crash. And mm -hmm. the history of auto safety is that when you have um, uh, classic success stories, that can really help um, demonstrate the benefits of these systems. Uh, unfortunately, in, in his crash, it was 
it was because it was a police car. It was not an automatic crash notification system, but it was essentially the same as an automatic crash notification system because there was a second police car behind him that was able to call for the air medical right. service. In other words, getting that notification, however you do it, yeah. Right. right. Are, are there um, – I, I know there's uh, people that can use cell phones too. I've, I've heard uh, – some instances where people have been in accidents and be able to, and are able to now obviously if you're conscious or someone in the car is to be able to dial nine one one but that is a a form of the system too is there have you seen any advances with cell phones themselves to be able to add this uh, I have not seen any studies that document that that but but it certainly is helpful because that, that's a uh, that's the first step is knowing that the crash occurred right. and knowing where it is. The next thing you need to know for urgency is um, the severity of the crash. Right, which the ACN then gives you, provides much more data. Could. Yeah, it could with yeah. urgency software. Yeah, right. So what are the yearly estimates on the number of crashes and serious injuries in the United States and you know, what are the economic costs of all this estimated to be? There are about 40,000 crash fatalities and about 200,000 serious injuries and about $230 billion in economic costs every year. Uh, now, we're in a, a deep recession, and, and that uh, tends to lower crash fatalities and crashes in, in general. Those are the figures that have been consistent, you know, for many, many years. About mm-hmm. 40,000 fatalities, 200,000 serious injuries. Yeah, I know with the uh, oil uh, prices, too, that reduced at the time. I was out in Seattle, and there was a market reduction in the number of cars and a big increase in use of public transportation. Absolutely. Right. That's what happens. You can see it all the way back to uh, in all the years that, We've had statistics. When there's an economic downturn, fatalities go down. There's less driving and less uh, less fatalities, less crashes. And so what would be, is there an estimate then on the total economic cost of crashes? The economic costs uh, uh, are about $230 billion uh, each year. And economic costs do not include values for pain and suffering. Mm. And the $230 billion, to put it in context, that equals about 2% of gross domestic product, GDP. Mm-hmm. And that cost is about equivalent to the combined expenditures in a year of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. I mean, that's, that's the magnitude of the losses in economic terms. And if, and if looking at healthcare reform too, if you could reduce the amount of of need medical costs uh, alone with this, yeah, absolutely. D- do you know, Lou, with the uh, the number total crashes that you talked about, um, uh, what percent could actually require air medical transport to a level one center? Is there estimates on that? In terms of seriousness, it's approximately 250,000 uh, crashes per year. 
but what we don't know is how many of those, for example, occur on the corner of the trauma center where you wouldn't use their medical services. Mm-hmm. But, so what, you know, it won't even be needed, in other words. But, but, yeah. but uh, that is one aspect of urgency that I would like to see developed. Okay? It is now possible. ACN tells you that the crash occurred. It tells you where it is. And it tells you um, uh, where it is relative to the air medical services the nearest air medical service and nearest uh, level one trauma center. So the software can be developed such that it says uh, in this crash, because of the severity and because of the location, we ought to at the minimum instantly alert the air medical services and the trauma center. Tell uh, our listeners then what exactly is this urgency software? Urgency software takes measures of uh, crash forces and uh, the statistics on the outcomes. So if you know you have a certain crash force, then you know uh, what the probability of a serious injury being present is. And urgency software can instantly calculate that. So since since it has crash sensors on the vehicle, and since there is a statistical database that tells you that when you have such crash uh, forces, you can expect uh, uh, serious injuries and, and what the probability of that serious injury is and so you can do that instantly and automatically uh, with urgency software. And was that Lou? Was that developed uh, at when you were at uh, NHTSA? Is that what year did you? It was my project at NHTSA, and, I... and we presented it to the administrator and uh, the higher the senior management at NHTSA in, 19, in March of 1997. I see. And what version? Are they using now? They're not using it yet. I see. Uh, and uh, that that's what I really want to see happen. We can do it, uh, but we have to have trials and we have to have um, people uh, collecting the data on its effectiveness. You have to have success stories, and you have to be able to show that this can make a difference. Right. And it can. Who would, want, who would not want to know the severity of the crash instantly and automatically? Everyone in the emergency medical community. Absolutely, yeah. Well, let's talk about, okay, assuming now that we're using... Uh, this software and, and EMS agencies can get that. How does that help a smarter dispatch decision with crash notification? Well, one example would be um, whether or not to send extrication equipment. Um, if you know that 
there is a high likelihood of serious and fatal injuries, you certainly ought to send um, uh, air medical, uh, you, I'm sorry, you should alert air medical, but you should certainly send the EM, the ambulance and heavy rescue extrication equipment to the scene of that crash. Mm -hmm. And you should certainly alert uh, the air medical and the um, trauma center that you have a crash uh, of high probability injuries, high severity injuries. So in other words, it's alerting the whole system, so you're really developing smarter protocols. Right. Uh, so going back to your sequential uh, example, uh, it would be everybody's notified in that particular case because you had a severe accident that you know that you're going to have to do extrication. You know that there's a likelihood that you will need extrication. You know mm -hmm. that there's a high probability of serious injury being right. present. And so you need to send the appropriate equipment. Well, talk about the, you know, we, we all in the EMS world understand these benefits, but what, what about for the public in general or, or uh, people that have been involved in these crashes? Um, we will all benefit uh, if we can do a better job of providing um, emergency medical care. Um, as I said, I think I've said, more than half the fatalities were not taken to a medical treatment facility. Um, that's, and that percentage has been growing year in, year out. So it's about 65 people a day who are seriously injured, die of their injuries at the scene and with, without uh, transport <clears throat> to a medical treatment facility. Cars are increasingly uh, safer because they have airbags, they have uh, stronger uh, components, and so the likelihood that we will be able to save them is greater. And we, you know, emergency medical care, and we, it's it's a it's a challenge to just get the right care in time. To say to the victim to save their lives and uh, prevent disability. Lou, I know you have a particular interest, at least in in receiving your emails. Uh, you talk a lot about rollover crashes and improving the crash worthiness of vehicle roofs. Um, what exactly are the issues here, and have there been progress in? in the roof strength, and then also, uh, I know we've all read that, you know, SUVs tend to have had problems. I know there's been improvements with center of gravity, and I know your interest is more on the, you know, the injuries that that causes, but what, what types of things here have uh, there been improvements? Um, there hasn't been a lot of improvement yet. Um, there's been a lot of uh, regulatory interest uh, and uh, legislative interest, but the improvements are uh, coming slowly. They will occur, but they are uh, uh, 
it, it will take years. Um, if you think about rollover, it, right now you have about 400,000 people each year involved in a rollover crash. That's about 1,000 people each year. About 59% of the rollover crashes will result in injured occupants. About 14% of the injured will have suffered fatal to serious injuries. It, if you have 10,000 10, people dying each year in rollover crashes, that's about 27 people a day. It's a, another 27 people a day survive, but survive with brain injuries, uh, uh, spinal cord injuries, burns, other serious amputations. So rollovers are a major uh, cause of death and disability in, uh, in crashes. Lou, I'm not sure if it was in uh, an article that you had sent out on your emails, but it, I found it interesting. It was a comparing the crash worthiness of a car from, I believe, the 1960s to one today, you know, and then they did a crash with the crash uh, test dummies and stuff. And I was absolutely amazed because a lot of people think, oh, the, you know, the old cars, the way they used to build them, big hunk of metal. Um, but in this particular example, the thing practically crushed halfway down the car where the car today, and I can't remember which cars they were using, uh, had a much better chance. So there has been some, there has been improvement. Cars uh, have been uh, greatly improved with structure, seat belts, mm -hmm. and airbags. Uh, enormous improvements in the ability of the vehicle to protect the occupant in a crash. How has that happened? Has that been through consumer demand? I know back to your idea on data, that's that's shown that. But have the automobile manufacturers, have they, are, are they coming around and trying to build safer cars too? It, they are. Uh, they have to do it. Uh, they view safety equipment as a cost. And so they're very reluctant to add safety equipment uh, uh, unless it is required either by legislation or regulation or by consumer demand. And uh, what happened in airbags, for 20 years they fought uh, putting airbags into cars. Uh, once the uh, uh, regulations were upheld by the Supreme Court and uh, they had to put airbags in the cars, there were success stories of airbags saving people. The classic one uh, was when two, when Lee Iacocca said, uh, we can use airbags as a marketing uh, advantage over other manufacturers. And he, uh, at the time he was head of Chrysler, and he put in airbags on the driver's side. And there was a crash um, where two Chrysler products 
uh, hit, hit head-on at about 35 miles an hour. And the police were called, the police arrived, and they saw this horrendous, horrendous crash. And there was no one there. And they then, they looked around, they couldn't believe that there was no one injured. And there was one person who was, uh, who had gone to one of the, uh, to a nearby house to call them. And what they found was that the airbags protected both drivers and they were not hurt. And so that became uh, an overnight, uh, it was on all of the newscasts, it was on uh, New York Times, Washington Post, papers all across the country. And people then started going, what, what people gathered from that was that the airbags saved those two people, but they did not capture the idea that it was a Chrysler product. So they would go to their dealerships and they would say, they'd walk into a Ford dealer or a GM dealer and they'd say, I want one of those cars with an airbag. And that market demand was recorded. In other words, the auto companies got the message that there's now market demand. And I call that, that crash airbag demand day. You want to get to that point with ACN, mm-hmm. with urgency. You want to get to that kind of demand day, and you need success stories. And I think we'll get there, but I just don't know when or how. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, as you said, it was 20 years with airbags. I'm, uh, I know, uh, we all keep pushing that there'll there'll be some change and and, and as you said you know the Adam or excuse me the uh, OnStar was one of the first ones but there are several other manufacturers now that are BMW has done a lot of work in that area. Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I know from '97 until your retirement at NHTSA, you worked uh, on the development of the Atlas and database of aeromedical services or what we call Adams and. Uh, those that are listeners that are new in the aeromedical world probably take all that for granted because at AMTC you can you know get your free disc and uh, I, I find it a, a wonderful resource of all the aeromedical programs have used that in several presentations. Tell us a little bit about the development of that. Well, we knew that once we had developed Urgency 1.0 uh, in 1997, we knew that we, so you have the information from the crash, and you know it has a high probability of serious injury. What are you going to do with that information? If you know, you also know the location, uh, thanks to ACN. So the question was, uh, what are you going to do with that information? You can use, so you needed to know as, as a nation, we needed to know where were the air medical services so that we could link to them when we knew that there was a high probability uh, of serious injury crash. How could we notify them? So what we did was we created Adams to know where all of the air medical services were, what areas of the country they covered, and where were they in relation to um, the level one trauma center. 
So now if you know that the crash is in such and such a location and you know that it's a high probability of serious injury, you can alert the air medical service and you can alert the, the level one trauma center to that crash. That, that's the linking, so that there are three things that are needed. We have the ACN, five million cars. We have the ADAMS uh, that tells you where you can send that information. And we have urgency software that can translate crash forces into the probability of a serious injury being present. So we have the elements of a, a smarter, faster, better emergency medical care system. I, on the database itself, what what was one of the big surprises that you found when you got the initial data in? Uh, honestly, I, I I don't think I was surprised. Uh, I, I I just viewed it as a, a a tool to linking the people who could save the life mm-hmm. with the people who needed to be saved. Well, maybe let me, I, I guess for my look at it, and especially studying those maps, and I've worked uh, all around the country with air medical programs that you see um, a wide diversity in some areas of the country, you have, you know, uh, very overlapping circles with a number of air medical providers. And I know a lot of that's population driven, but not always. And then other areas of the country where you have very wide expanses that really don't have uh, at least helicopter EMS response, maybe fixed-wing response. Well, I do believe uh, uh, I do believe that the air medical system uh, services, I mean, because it, it it tends to be relatively small companies, um, uh, it, they don't have the, the legislative power of a uh, you know of an automobile industry or an insurance industry uh, they don't have that kind of clout but I do believe that with ACN or Adams and urgency we can show that it can be much more effective and what uh, it can be in a more effective industry and you can get public demand not just for uh, the unit on the car, but you can get uh, public demand and public approval and public uh, support for reimbursement mechanisms mm-hmm. such that uh, you know there may there may be stretches of Wyoming, Wyoming or Montana that you it'll may never happen, but. Uh, or Alaska, that would be a better example. But um, but you certainly can do uh, an enormously better job than we're doing right now. So this would, if we more, we know that air medical services can do uh, life-saving work. What we want is to use the technology such that uh, that it can be more effective and more efficient, and it gains 
public uh, approval and demand uh, for their services. Mm-hmm. That, that's what we, you know, that's what I would like to do. That's why I was willing to, you know, you know, join um, uh, Ames. Right. Do you, what is the, I've always been curious, what uh, percent uh, of the air medical programs actually participate and do you feel the accuracy is, is pretty great on the Adams database? I have no way of judging that. I mean, it, it is self-reported as, as far as I right. know. And uh, uh, I have no way of judging uh you know whether they're doing a good job of reporting or not, uh, mm. but but as far as the crash victims are concerned, what I would like to see NHTSA do is NHTSA has in raw data, but not on hard copy reports, but not in their automated databases. They could organize such that when there's a fatal crash. The crash report tells you where was this person taken and what air med- what what medical services EMT or emergency medical service transported the, the the victim. So, on essentially all forty thousand deaths each year, we could start getting that data, and we could start documenting. Uh, both the success and the need for um, uh, air medical transport. Mm -hmm. How many, for example, of those 40,000 are within, uh, let's say, 10 blocks of a trauma center? How many of them are 10 miles or more from a level one trauma center? That sort of thing. And and as I was trying to get at, how many could have benefited where there's not a service available and that, you know, we need to look at trying to, to yes. have a service out there and provide yes. the type of support that would do that. That is, that is perfectly doable yeah. if we can get NHTSA, and, and I believe we can get NHTSA to start collecting that data, yeah. automating it. They have the data. Well, Lou, we're at the, at the end of the podcast here, but... How do individuals and organizations become involved in in supporting the work that you're doing? Um, uh, There will be a link to your website uh, in in the show notes, but is there any specific things that people can do? Uh, They can, at a minimum, email me and uh, ask to be uh, added to my email list, uh, and I will keep them informed, and we can explore I can always do consulting for anyone who uh, um, uh, would like to do more in this area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now I will have your email address in the show notes too, so people can get to you. Because uh, I've certainly um, uh, liked subscribing. I have, I think, for years now. As long as you've been doing it, uh, getting those uh, emails and have been. Uh, very helpful in reading about this uh, important area. Thank you, Ed. Well, thanks uh, for being on the podcast. It's uh, been wonderful working with you over these last several years uh, through the Association of Air Medical Services, and I'll look forward uh, uh, to your continued work and following you uh, as uh, your, your 
quest to improve uh, care for crash victims. So thanks again. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast, and I do hope you will come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com and also on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the site. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.